Have you ever been to a place that is really, really dark? Like, it's so dark you can hardly see your hand in front of your face. Uh, I've been in that situation a few times. It's pretty uncomfortable to be in the darkness. Uh, Once uh, we were driving as a family to a little town called Conrad, Iowa, and it was so dark, pitch black around us, that one of our kids, who was very little at the time, said, Daddy, is this the middle of nowhere? And I said, yes, yes it is. All right, another time, uh, we took a family vacation to Mammoth Cave, and Mammoth Cave, you go way down below in these gigantic rooms. This is a gigantic room. And it was so beautiful and the, with all the lights on it and everything. And then they say, okay, everybody, we're gonna turn the lights off now, and then this, hap- this is what it looks like when lights are off. Yeah, I mean, like, it is totally pitch black. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. And they said, that's why you don't want to wander off from the tour guide. And we all got the message. Uh, Another time, we were actually, as a family, I was speaking and and doing some teaching in in the hills and the mountains of Austria. And we were, our movement, the Free Church, has some camps. And so we stayed at this camp in Austria, beautiful mountains and hills, uh, and then we went uh, to another place uh, in Salzburg. Just stay right here. Salzburg. And uh, uh, we were looking for the, the free church camp. Couldn't find it. And, but we went to this little place that they put us to stay. And it was just such this beautiful scene. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, uh, and we were just taking this all in. And I, we were thinking of, you know, the sound of music, you know. And, uh, and I said, but how are we going to find this, this camp? Because we don't know where it is. So we just had our windows open. And suddenly off in the distance, we heard this. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, we lift your name on high in English. And then we knew that's the English camp that we've been looking for. I turned to Ruth and I said, hearing that music, I said, Ruth, the hills are alive with the sound of music. So we got into our uh, minivan and we started driving there. It was getting late at night and by the time we got to this and just listened to the music and actually followed the sound of music to the camp, by the time we got to the parking lot, there was, there was no way we could see. It was, it was complete pitch, black, uh, pitch blackness. We turned out uh, our car lights and it's like out. So I got out the little cell phone line and we're stumbling our way to the darkness and finally There's the people singing. We hear it building, building, and then they have a bonfire, and it's lighting up this darkness. It was beautiful as it was created, but in the darkness, you just couldn't see the beauty anymore. We finally made our way to to this spot, and that's what it looks like in, in the light. It's a beautiful place. Guys, we live in a world, we live in a culture, we live in a land that uh, that God created. And it's, it's filled with beauty. But sometimes it seems so dark. And, and sometimes our own sin and our own mistakes and our own uh, ideas kind of camouflage the beauty of the world. And a lot of people who, who, who have forgotten about who God is or never knew who God is, they're, they're really living in darkness. And as believers in Jesus, of course, we know he's the light of the world. And so we have this, this calling in our lives, this responsibility in our lives to, have, to light the world. We first want to be enlightened by the spirit of Jesus Christ. We want to have him fill our lives so full of light. And then we want to shine that light.
So today I want to I return to where we were last weekend in the book of Acts uh, as the Apostle Paul on this missionary journey visiting cities comes to the great city of Athens. And we're going to learn from his experience how he came to a place that had a lot of darkness, had a lot of troubles, had a lot of hardships, people struggling, people thinking maybe they knew answers but really were lost in darkness and in falsehood. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And so he came to Athens. And just as a refresher, um, let's go back to Acts chapter 17. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. It bothered him. It was not okay that God was so unknown there, that God was so not glorified there, that people there did not know anything about the one true God who loved them and who had given their son, his son, to die on the cross for them and to be raised from the dead. And this deeply distressed him for God to be so dishonored and for people to be in such darkness. He, he, he made his way around Athens and he, it was a huge city in the ancient world. It had 100,000 people but 30,000 idols. As Paul, one writer writes, journeys into the heart of the city, he feels a sense of awe at the impressive architecture and grandeur of the immense buildings from the center of this center of Hellenistic culture. What he had only heard about previously, he now sees firsthand. Magnificent temples, magnificent architecture, uh, uh, all sorts of colonnades and, and, and impressive buildings. Towering above all is the magnificent Parthenon, a temple dedicated to Athena, sitting atop the Acropolis as the crowning achievement of this culture. The temple measured basically the size of a football field. It was enormous, and it was 34 feet high, and in the middle of it was a gigantic, gigantic statue of Athena, the goddess of wisdom whom they worshipped as the patron goddess of their city, Athens. The Acropolis was magnificent, measuring 1,050 feet by 512 feet, rising 512 feet high. It stands impressive still today at the center of the city. But through all of this magnificent, he saw the darkness. He wasn't taken in by like a tourist, he was a missionary. And so we are called to be the same. Verse 17, so he reasoned with, in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God. So he goes to the synagogue, he goes to the streets. And then it says, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there. So he goes to the mall and just dialogues with people. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. They had very different views about the world. Just quickly, what, what do they believe, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Well, we learned the Epicureans, uh, we, we said, you know, in a nutshell, don't worry, be happy. Um, they, they believed that the, the world was created out of a collection of atoms in space that operate according to natural laws. There is not a divine creation, according to the Epicureans. It's essentially a materialist worldview. They believe that gods exist, but they live outside the world in interstellar spaces. They do not intervene in the affairs of humanity. There's no place for a God who provides or who could be prayed to or called upon. 
Because they are superior beings, they are worthy of worship and honor. But so little attention really in their system is paid to the gods that the Epicureans were called atheists by their contemporaries. They said they really don't believe in God. They kind of just give lip service. There was no concept of sin. The avoidance of actions that produce pain was really what Epicureans were all about. The chief goal of human existence is to live in accordance with nature. Be one with nature. Pleasure represents the absence of pain. Don't worry. Be happy. Friendship and community is the primary source of pleasure in their system. They did not believe in an afterlife. There is no life after death, according to the Epicureans. And when the body dies, the soul also disintegrates. The Stoics were different. The Stoics believed that the world had been created out of fire. From fire came air, from air water, and from water earth. So even back then, they had earth, wind, and fire. The Stoics were, believed that God was in everything. They were pantheistic. God was a part of all of his creation. He's kind of infused into nature itself. God and nature were together. They might refer to the supreme God as Zeus, but they also equate him with fate, nature, the world's soul. The gods of the popular religions they believe do exist, but their mythologies they believed, most of what people believed was only a crude expression of what reality was. There's no concept of sin. Error is nothing more than the failure of attaining your best or acting contrary to the laws of nature. There's no concept of, of a relationship with God or going against uh, the law of God. We all live in the grip of the relentless pull of fate. That's what the Stoics believe. So just walk it off. You don't really control. You don't control your destiny at all. The pursuit of virtue was their primary good. To be, virtue, to be virtuous is to be in harmony with reason, to be at one with nature. They believed in a limited survival after death, but not in the sense of a personal individual existence. It's just kind of merged with nature. And then the people had this general idea of all these gods and goddesses. So there's all sorts of views represented. And some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. They misunderstood him because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They may have misunderstood resurrection because the word is Anastasia. They thought he was talking about another goddess, Anastasia. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is a place the philosophers all hang out, hang out. And it's called Mars Hill. Ares is the god of um, war. The Areopagus, Mars Hill, same, word, same place. And they said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting. Because what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these things mean. So now all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. We summarize that all last week. I can kind of sum it up by saying... Engage other worldviews with compassionate discontent. Learn about what other people believe. Get to know people. Get to know our neighbors. Get to know what they think and feel. But there's a compassionate discontent that we have. It's like this is not okay for people that, that just don't know the one true God, Jesus Christ. And there's a compassion to it. Not to complain about it, but to truly love and, and to have a story of compassion. If, if you missed, happened to miss last week, shame on you. No, just kidding. If you happen to miss like last week, please 
listen to the message and, and get all that background. So Paul had seen Athens, but not as a tourist or a missionary. And any time we approach our own culture, it's about knowing what, what the culture is about, about seeing it in the light of reality, how people are made in the image of God and they matter to him, and yet there's so much darkness. And then to feel it, feel this compassion and this discontent. And then the last step is to do, do something about it. So know, see, feel, and then do. But let's go on to the passage. It says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every way, in every respect. He noted what we could note about today's folks. People are religious or they are spiritual. In other words, there's this longing and they fill it up with something that matters to them. A lot of our idols or spiritualities have little to do with the God of the scriptures, but they're oftentimes a, a kind of an amalgamation of cultural beliefs thrown together to try to give meaning and purpose. But people are spiritual. They're seeking in all sorts of places for meaning and purpose. There are, people are extremely religious. And he, he actually builds some common ground with them there. So here's the first principle. If we want to make a difference, second principle, if we want to make a difference, find common ground. When the Apostle Paul saw all those idols, it disturbed him. But he didn't insult the people. He didn't come on strong and say, you idolatrous pagans, what's wrong with you? You're, this makes me sick just to look around. He didn't do that. He started out really with a compliment. I see that you're really religious. Like you're extremely religious. Like you're really into the spiritual. And he built some common ground. Here's, where we, here's what we can learn something. We can learn. Get to know people. Get to know people around you. What are their values? What are their interests? What are their thoughts? And in our community, what's important here? What do people care about? What gets spotlighted? What makes you feel significant or important or loved? And when you learn those things, you're, you're much better attached to the people. You understand a little bit about where they're coming from. The best way... To be a light in the darkness starts with just that compassionate discontent and then seeking common ground. Finding some place where you can have some conversation and then look for the things that you can affirm in them. Is there something positive you can say? That's what Paul did. You can seek to affirm something, compliment them even. Where might there be a common interest? Even if you don't agree, they're not like, you're interested in this, I'm interested too. Good for you. You can find something there where there's some common interest and some common ground. It may start in very plain, ordinary things of life, but it slowly merges into the spiritual. It's a matter of ideas. This is where Paul, by this point, was. He had hung out in the marketplace, and now he's talking about spiritual matters. There's times in my life when I've come in contact with people who have very different uh, beliefs than I do. And, and they're very contrary, perhaps, even to the scriptures. Totally reject Jesus Christ, or they want to make their kind of own spirituality. And sometimes they're really excited about it. I've met people like this. They're super excited about it. I, I was really, there was a woman once on an airplane uh, that I sat next to, and she was like evangelistic about her pantheism, uh, about her kind of one with the world's soul. And she was basically trying to convert me to her view. 
And you know what I said? I said, I really admire your passion, your zeal. Because I have that kind of passion and zeal too. So there's a common ground. I wasn't insulting her, but I saw some common ground. And that opened up because there was respect that opened up dialogue then. Verse 23. For I was just passing through and observing the objects of your worship. The things that you value. The things that you perceive that give meaning and significance to. The things that you say are important to you. They're objects of worship. Your devotion. Like these are really important things. He says, I, he says, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So the Athenians and the Epicureans and the Stoics and various views that were out there. They had all these ideologies. They had all these beliefs. And the popular folks had all these um, and then just at a popular level, had all these idols everywhere. And they were just covering their bases. They're like, well, we want to make sure we, we, we stay in good, you know, good uh, standing with this god or this goddess or whatever. And they weren't sure, and sometimes there was fear attached to that. Like, the god is going to strike me down, or it's gonna, the goddess is going to be mad at me. So they're just trying to appease them with worship and sacrifices and all these temples and all these idols. And they were so concerned about that that they wanted to make sure that they had all their bases covered. And so they had actually had an altar to an unknown god. They were chasing after all these different gods and goddesses. And they said, well, just in case we haven't met them all or known them all, we'll have a devotion to this unknown god. And Paul takes that point in the culture where they're very spiritual and very religious, and he sees an opening, an opportunity to talk. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, and actually, I love the CSB translation almost 100% of the time, but actually, there's another translation that says, what you worship as unknown. This sounds a little bit like an insult. I like it better as what you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. There's what you, you admit that you're still seeking you got this unknown God out there. You admit you're not sure. You're still exploring. I'm going to tell you about the God you don't know. Because I've met him. It's a very powerful moment. What you worship as unknown, I now am going to tell you about. Here's the, here's the third uh, uh, point, an action point, if we're going to be a light in the darkness, is we get to offer an intriguing alternative. So we build common ground, and then we offer some intriguing alternative. It's like, let me tell you. And I love how the Apostle Paul does it here because he, he says he takes that unknown, something you don't know about, and he, he, he kind of offers it out there in a very intriguing way. He offers them an alternative, something you might not have considered before. I love that it's intriguing. So when, as we're talking to people and, and we're talking, maybe we have opportunity to talk about spiritual things. We want to do it in a way that's interesting, in a way that's intriguing and not boring. In other words, are they leaning forward to listen to us or are they yawning and like oh, well, gonna looking at you know, their cell phone or something? Let's, let's be thoughtful. Let's be creative. Let's be intriguing, not personality-wise, but just in the way that we talk to people that Wets their appetite, that creates thirsts, that makes people curious. Maybe that you can discuss as your life group ways to do that. 
where you say, have you ever thought about this? I, I've often wondered about this. Or I'd love to talk about this if you'd be interested. By the way, um, last weekend I talked about that history professor who sparked us all. His name was Rufus Fears. Year after year, he won professor of the year at Indiana University when I was a student there. And, um, you know, I, I said he goaded us on to greatness. And he said, does anybody here really believe that what they believe is the truth? I didn't know that then. But I found out later, Dr. Rufus Fears was a follower of Jesus. He died about 10 years ago. And I, I looked it up online, and, and people wrote just pages and pages of tribute to him, of how he sprinkled in little things to make students think and ask questions. He sprinkled in little thoughts in his lectures. And he was at a secular university but he took opportunities to have private conversations with students when they asked questions about spirituality. He spoke, I found out later, spoke often in churches all around. He was a staunch defender of the historicity, the historical truth of the New Testament. He, he was a staunch defender of that. He was an amazing Christian man. He did exactly what I'm talking about when I say an intriguing alternative because he dropped little clues in. And in my life, as a 20-year-old, it was enough to make me go back to my dorm room and pray to God and, and seek more, even as a believer in Jesus. And think of all the impact that he had on students that weren't yet followers of Jesus through, through the intriguing nature of the way that he spoke to people. It's very powerful. So sometimes we just offer those alternatives. Have you ever thought that there might be a different way of looking at this? Have you ever thought about something maybe you haven't considered before? Especially with people that maybe don't have a, a Christian background. We ask them about their background and we, we see what we can. But then we have an opportunity to talk to them. By the way, if this all seems very challenging to you, that's why we have the Good for All Conference. Because the Good for All Conference, guys, is ways for us. They've got great speakers lined up. October 7th through 9th is coming. But we've got great speakers. They're going to help you love your neighbors, build bridges of, of kindness and compassion, and be able to develop uh, to, to friendships, discover stories, and then discern those next steps to be a light in our darkness. If you'd like to get uh, signed up, you just you could today even register um, by texting the word register to 515-644-1021. You might want to just even, you know, take a, uh, a, um, a cell phone photo of that right now. And, and you can get signed up that way. And then uh, if you, we encourage you also to use the code VALLEY21 because there you're going to get a deep, deep discount. And don't delay on this. Uh, let's, let's get you signed up. So that's why we do this. So you can learn how to get to know people from very different backgrounds or get to know people who are skeptics or doubters or explorers. And, um, and, uh, and help them find their way home to the God who loves them. So where do, you, where do you go from there? So you've got this intriguing alternative you're getting ready to offer. Well, then you do what the Apostle Paul did. And when the opportunity opens up, we describe a whole new vision of God. I think there are many people, guys, in our world, when they hear Christianity, they have it attached to all sorts of distortions, to maybe some dark history in the church or some contemporary scandals or whatever. And that's their picture of Christianity. And it has little to do with Jesus. 
And so what we can do is describe this whole new vision of God. And some people are just bored. They're like, that is so boring. Or they have a very twisted understanding of who Jesus really is. Or maybe we've stumbled and we've gone, you know, in wrong directions where we've mixed it together with politics or mixed it together with stuff that really wasn't just pure Jesus stuff. It was like secondary, third matters that didn't really rise to the level of importance when we just want people to know about Jesus. And maybe to some, some things they've heard seem offensive to them. So can we build a bridge and, and give them a whole new vision of the one true God of the scriptures? That's what the apostle Paul did. He gave them a whole new vision. It was so different from what they imagined in their minds, what their own beliefs were, and what maybe they imagined you know, other people to believe. So let's just look quickly at what he said. And I love it because Paul keeps it simple. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by hands. So right there, just wait right there. The God who made the world. So right now he's got this personal creator who actually designed and created this magnificent creation. He's already giving them, blowing their minds. There's a personal God who designed all this. You're not a mistake. You're made in the image and likeness of God. He's Lord of heaven and earth. There's only one God. So he had all these 30,000 idols. He's saying he's one God. That's it. Very striking alternative. Very intriguing. A whole new vision of God was one, one God. And he doesn't live in shrines made by hands. It was an audacious thing to say. Standing there on Mars Hill with the Acropolis and all the temples and the Parthenon and Athena's statue in the distance and say, God, he doesn't live in houses as magnificent as they are. God doesn't live there. He's much greater. He cannot be contained in a building. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Some people have the idea that God somehow needs us and he's dependent on us and they, they would bring uh, you know, food for the gods and so forth. And the small gods and goddesses. He's, he's so magnificent. He's so glorious. He can get along fine without us since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He, he's the one that gives us life. And he's the one that enables you to wake up in the morning and breathe. And every good and perfect gift is from him. He expanded on this. What we're getting here is a condensed version of what he said. But it was magnificent. Here's what he was telling them. There's a life-giving creator and provider. That's the God I serve. He gives life. He's involved in creation. He's involved in everything. and the way you were made. Your kids. The job you have. And this situation that's a blessing to you, all that's from him. He's a provider. So he gave them a whole very different picture of God. You know, every culture has its creation story. And I think for many people in our culture, their creation story has, has wandered into a kind of meaningless, random chance accident. Just molecules coming together and somehow here we are. And the God of the Bible doesn't matter what you think of, you know, the timing and the mode of crea creation that God did and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to get into that. But the idea of a personal creator 
who designed this. It's not random chance. It's not an accident. That was something new then and it is now. People need to hear about a life-giving creator and provider. Let's keep going on though. It's so exciting. From one man, he made every nationality. So God is into making all these different peoples. They're diverse populations that you see and all of them unique and, 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 and special in their different ways. God did that. The diversity you see in the human race, that was God who did this. God meant it to be that way, the human family. To live all over the earth, he says. And he's determined their appointed times. In other words, we're not cosmic accidents. Your life matters. God has a plan. He says he's determined the appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. In other words, God is in, in, in charge of all the rise and fall of civilizations, leaders, of all nations. We need to hear that in a day of upheaval all over the world. That there's God who is in charge, who has a plan, who hasn't lost it, who isn't uh, seeing the world spinning out of control and saying, what in the world has happened? He knows. He's in control. And though all, many times we don't know the mystery of why it's happening we know that behind it all is a God who is in control. So what we learn here is that he's presenting to them this powerful designer who, who really does care about us, but also who has a plan for history and it's going someplace. And he designed, and you're where you are, Des Moines, Iowa, or wherever you're hearing this and watching this message today, God has a reason why you are right there right now. Yeah, that was different then and now. You're not a mistake. And you matter. You matter to God. Verse 27. He did this so they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. You think of him as some far off, uninvolved deity? Or that just he's just kind of impersonally a part of nature? No. It's a personal God who's closer than you think. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. You don't take a single breath. You don't see with your eyes, hear with your ears, taste, touch, feel. All these things are from the God who made you. He's highly involved. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He even quotes one of their pagan a poet's, and says, you know, we got some common ground here because one of your poets once said, we are God's offspring. That unknown God you're talking about? Yeah, we're made in his image and likeness. He's the one who created us. Here's what we're learning. He's not a far off God. He's a nearby God. He's near each one of us. And he seeks a relationship with us. Go back to verse 27. He did this. So they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The reason God made all of us is so that we might have a relationship with him. That's a God you can present to others that's powerful. Keep going on. Verse 29. Since then we are God's offspring. We're created in his image and likeness. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. All these idols and temples and colonnades and 
An image fashioned by human art and imagination. He's referring to Athena and the other gods and goddesses over there. And I, I, I actually have stood on Mars Hill. Here's a photo of it. And here is where, right where Paul was standing. It's an awesome moment for a preacher to stand on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and reading and speaking Acts 17. I did it there. It was an amazing moment. But looking off in the distance is the Acropolis and these magnificent things. You can only see a portion of them here in this photo, but it's all there. It's so magnificent. And that's in a few years ago. Can you imagine how magnificent it was 2,000 years ago? But here's the audacity of it. He says, God's not like that. He's not a statue. He's not just a part of nature. He cares about you. He wants a relationship with you. Therefore, Verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance or not really knowing, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. I'm bringing you a message. I've been talking about Jesus for weeks or for, for days here. He says, now it's time to turn to the God I just told you about. That unknown God, he, he longs to have a relationship. And the word repent there is to turn, to change your mind. He calls on them to change their thinking, which impacts their whole lives and their hearts and their souls. Verse 31, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he's, he's said all these things about the God, life-giving creator and provider, powerful designer and planner, nearby God who seeks a relationship with you. And he ends it by saying, there's a living God to whom we all answer. You see, they believe there's lots of gods and lots of goddesses. And Paul said, actually, there's only one God. It was audacious for him to say that. Audacious for him to look at, up at those things and say, that's actually not true. It's audacious today. I, I'm sure there's some people there thinking, Paul, how can you say that those people are wrong about this? There's, there's 100,000 people. Can they all be wrong? And he had the audacity to say, actually, he had respect and he... he he affirmed their zeal and the extreme spirituality of them. But he said, actually, those gods are not real. Those goddesses are not true. They have led you into darkness. That's a, that's a big statement then. And it's a big statement now. He says, it's time now because you know. You know something. You know better. And he had taken some time to explain it to them. We're just getting a summary here. But he says, you're going to be accountable for that. Because there's one man, God's only son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins in our place and then was raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And it vindicated everything that God, Jesus claimed to be. Here's the last point. Or, uh, point people towards Jesus. Point people towards Jesus. Ultimately, it's not about, you know, religious stuff. It's not about what our particular beliefs on this or that topic. Ultimately, it's about Jesus. Every single person needs to answer the question, was Jesus really raised from the dead? It's not about ideas and opinions. It's about a historical event. Was Jesus really raised from the dead? If he wasn't, then He's just an imposter or he's just crazy and claimed all sorts of things that aren't true. But if he is raised from the dead, 
then God vindicated all of his claims to be the one true son of the living God. And we point people towards Jesus in that. We end with this, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. So one group insulted and ridiculed. The other said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. You're curious. Have more questions. Wanted to continue the discussion. That's good. And just Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. They trust in Jesus. They cross the line of faith, including Dionysius, the Areopagite. This guy is like, he was all in on the whole Areopagus and, and everything connected to that culture. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So some peace, people crossed the line of faith. Here's the sixth and final thing I want to say is we need to anticipate a spectrum of reactions. Some people are going to ridicule. Some people are going to say, I'm curious. I'd like to talk, discuss this further. And some people are going to say, you know what? I'm ready to believe. You are called and I am called to be light in the darkness. These are some simple principles that God has given to us. To be able to sprinkle those clues, to build relationships, to spark curiosity, to have spiritual conversations with people, and to lead them from the darkness they may be in, the confusion they may be in, or even maybe contented but not truly knowing the one true God, and to point them to the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the only one who was raised from the dead. No other God went to a cross to die for sins. No other God lives and reigns and is coming again. There's only one. Father, Today, I pray that every single person who hears this will know that they matter. Father, speak into their hearts right today and say, son, daughter, you matter to me. And you can make a difference. Some who need to cross the line of faith today. And some who need to hear you matter. You can make a difference. You can be light in the darkness. Help each of those people who, who you love and know as their sons and daughters to know that they really matter today. And Father, I, I pray that through this, we can look at people like the Apostle Paul did through eyes of compassionate discontent and say they matter. They matter. Their destiny matters. Their lives matter. They matter to me because they matter to you. We say this and believe this all in your name, Lord Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen.